welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. On the first official episode of Reductio, we discussed a kind of proof, a reductio. We talked about uh, flying spaghetti monsters and flat eartherism. This time I talked with one of my dear friends about a more serious and philosophical reductio. I'm Michael Fitzpatrick. I'm a graduate student completing a doctoral uh, program in philosophy at Stanford University. And I'm interested in a wide number of issues in philosophy, My dissertation is focused on epistemic responsibility in contemporary epistemology, but I'm also really interested in questions about different thinkers in the history of philosophy. Which is why we have you here today, in fact. Come with me on a journey. Going back in time. Back further than the Renaissance. The Middle Ages. Back further than the fall of Rome, the entire Roman Empire, in fact. Back to ancient Greece. Back to the time of a Greek fellow who lived in Upper Greece, a place called Central Macedonia. We're going to talk about Aristotle, who had an interesting reductio proof of his own. So, Michael, why are you interested in Aristotle? My work has mainly focused on the modern period, which roughly starts around the 1600s. But I also have a lot of interest in the philosophy of religion, theology, and that's sort of what led me to musings on Aristotle's theology, since Aristotle had a huge impact on Christian philosophy and Christian theology in the last 2,000 years. So because Aristotle's impact throughout the Christian and otherwise Western philosophical world is difficult to overstate, you've been drawn to do a bit of study of his worldview. Good. But what is interesting about Aristotle as a thinker apart from his influence in the 2300 years since his death? I think one one reason that I find Aristotle really interesting is that his philosophical views are surprisingly intuitive. Uh, By intuitive, I don't mean correct but rather that he reflects maybe a a natural way of thinking if you didn't have all of the evidence that modern science has given us. Um, So when Galileo showed that a heavy ball and a feather will fall at the same rate from a tower, he was disconfirming a long-standing Aristotelian idea that heavier things should fall faster than lighter things. And I actually think that's very intuitive thought, and that's what makes Galileo's experiment so surprising. So... It's nice to study Aristotle and sort of see what the deeper arguments and motivations might be for some of the intuitive ideas that we have, even if they're wrong. And they may not always be wrong. Sometimes Aristotle says things that uh, even contemporary thinkers still think might be worthwhile in a modern context. So Aristotle seems to give voice to many understandable assumptions about the way the natural world works. This Aristotle character lived in Greece and the Balkan Peninsula more broadly around the years 384 to 322 before the Common Era. 
So, Michael, who was this guy, this Aristotle? Um, Aristotle was probably a genius. He wrote prolific philosophy on almost every dimension of human and natural life. He pioneered biology and anatomy and um, cosmology and was also really interested in poetry and politics and ethics. And again, even if some of his ideas in these areas are no longer current, it's hard to imagine where contemporary studies would be if it hadn't been for Aristotle um, even giving us kind of a range of the topics to study and an initial attempt to figure out how to study them. So I think if he was around today, he would awe us with his intellect. Okay, great. Smart dude. In some sense, the founder of a majority of areas of study we have today, biology, psychology, naturalism, physics, metaphysics, and so on. What do we know about his life, though? So Aristotle is sort of the uh, third in succession to kind of the great start of Athenian philosophy. His sort of grandfather figure is Socrates, who inspired a community of students in Athens through both his teachings and his death. One of those students was Plato, and Plato was going to become a famous politician and instead decided to become a, a philosopher and started the first university in history called the Academy. And one of his students at the Academy was Aristotle. And it was widely thought, and I think even Aristotle thought, that uh, when Plato died, he would be the natural successor to lead the Academy. Um, that did not pan out. Um, someone else took over Plato's uh, figurehead position. And so Aristotle left and eventually, I think, became the tutor for Alexander the Great. So Socrates was this funny sort of fellow who walked around Athens bugging people by asking them annoying questions until they got confused and frustrated and eventually walked away. If you've ever heard of the Socratic method, it's named after him. Eventually, he bugged enough people that the authorities of Athens sentenced him to death for impiety and for corrupting the youth of the city. During his trial, interestingly enough, he compared himself to a gadfly, annoying the giant lazy horse of popular society out of its malaise. Philosophers to this day take great pride in our ability to corrupt the youth, to get even young people thinking critically, questioning the assumptions we all make in everyday life, and trying to understand the world around them. Socrates drank hemlock, a poison, and died in 399 before the Common Era. Plato, P-L-A-T-O, not Plato the clay, silly, was one of Socrates' students, an athletic wrestler type who took physical fitness and intellectual training very seriously. Plato starts a school called the Academy or Academia. Ever hear of a platonic relationship? Well, that's named after this guy. Finally, we get to Plato's star pupil, Aristotle. Aristotle is sort of like Socrates' philosophical grandson. Aristotle leaves Plato's school and begins tutoring Alexander the Great. Yeah, the Colin Farrell one. Alexander, be reasonable! And that's partially why Greek ideas spread all over the place. 
and then um, I believe he returned to Athens at some point and started a rival academy to the academy, which was called the Lyceum. And that's the reason why we know so much of what Aristotle thought is because we have all of these nice little book collections, which are actually lecture notes taken by his students. Aristotle did some writing of his own, mostly between 335 and 323 BCE, but many of his writings were lost to history. What we have left are some original texts, some fragments of his dialogues, and a lot of notes from his students at the Lyceum. It's a pretty hefty two-volume, multiple-thousand-page collection put all together. I own all of it. It's a serious chunk of text, and it's only part of what the guy wrote in his prolific lifetime. Okay, so that's enough introduction to the guy. Let's get on to the argument Aristotle came up with that is of interest to us today, his proof for the existence of the unmoved mover. What is an unmoved mover? What he's interested in is why the heavens, basically everything in the universe beyond the moon, why the heavens don't change. Now, that might be a surprising thing to wonder about to a modern person because we think the heavens do change. But back then, um, whenever astronomers looked up in the sky, everything seemed fixed to them. And so um, Aristotle, sharing the same conviction, developed a series of arguments that made him think that the, the heavens are necessarily fixed. And so that whatever movement you see planets or stars or um, any part of the heavens having, that movement was eternal in a kind of cyclical pattern. And he wanted to explain this pattern. And so he argued that uh, this movement must have its origin in a necessary, eternal, immaterial source that would generate the movement for everything in the heavens and that movement in turn would generate all the movement on the earth and that thing that source of all the movement he's going to call the prime mover or god with a capital g so you look up at the sky in ancient greece you notice that throughout the years it pretty much does the exact same thing nothing seems to be moving relative to one another apart from the stray shooting star or something like that even though the sky is turning as a whole it doesn't seem like there's a lot of movement between the stars what movement there is though seems to be in fixed patterns what gives everything on earth moves and then stops and then moves and then stops it moves in this direction and then comes to rest and then gets bumped in this direction and then comes to rest in a new location. Even things that never really stop moving are constantly changing the direction and speed and manner of their movement. Everything below the moon seems to act this way. Aristotle's really bothered by the fact that the heavens apparently aren't like this. They move and move and move and move, never stopping and starting, never changing their motions, just remaining fixed in their apparently eternal circular motion. In a word, Aristotle thought the explanation for the movement of the heavens was God, an unmoved mover, or a source of movement that itself needs no external source of movement, something that causes change in other things, while never itself changing or being caused to do anything at all. So I interpret... Aristotle as a polytheist, so there are many gods, or at least I should say many unmoved movers. And I also think that he doesn't think the prime mover caused the movements of any of the other unmoved movers, because then they wouldn't be unmoved. 
So I suspect that he wants to give these the label of God because these are the entities in the universe that bear the closest resemblance to the Greek mythology of his day. So he's actually giving a kind of philosophical explanation for the kernel of truth in the Greek myths as he understood them. So when we say God, don't think of the Christian God or the Jewish God. Remember that Aristotle is living about 360 years before Jesus was killed. No Christian religion. And as far as we know, very little interaction with the Jewish and Zoroastrian religions. So Aristotle was working within the Greek theological context. No! I created them. And they rewarded my love with defiance. Let's walk through his proof step by step. There are six steps. We'll take it nice and slow. What we're doing here is called rational reconstruction. We're taking what Aristotle actually said, and then we're reconstructing an argument based on his writings. Assumption by assumption, step by step. Even though Aristotle didn't literally write or say everything here, it's quite clear from what he did say that he meant his argument to be understood in something like the following way. I love reconstructing arguments. I do it with my students every semester, and for some reason I get a really big kick out of it. I, I think it's like, it's like having this tool that took years to develop, and now that I've got it, I really love putting it to use. So the first premise we've already talked about, and that is that the motion of the heavens is unceasing and unchanging. Aristotle first observes that the heavens are moving in a fixed pattern that never seems to change. The motion isn't winding down towards a stationary state or winding up from a state of less motion. So it's the same kind of motion, always has been, always will be, and it will never stop. The motion never changes. Since we now believe this to be false, we'll talk a little later about whether there's a version of Aristotle's argument that still works. For now, let's enter into Aristotle's world a bit and accept that there's this freaky kind of motion up in the heavens that never ceases, and there's no starting point or end point, it just moves constantly in a circle. Simple enough, this is the first claim of the argument. The second premise is that the movement of any entity requires some mover to cause it. What's an entity? It's just a fancy word for a thing. Anything or any entity that moves needs to have a reason for it to move. A pusher, a puller, a force, some momentum, or something like that. Think about this in a very intuitive way. Uh, if you have a rock on the ground, that rock will be there until you walk by and you kick the rock, or you take a stick and you push the rock around, or maybe a, a rock slide happens that pulls the ground underneath the rock out from under it. But otherwise, the rock isn't going to go anywhere. This is Aristotle's model for thinking about all motion and change in the universe. Things don't change unless something makes them change. Sometimes that source of change comes from within, like when puberty happens in human beings because of the natural switching of genes on and off throughout a human life. No external force here. Most times, though, the source of any change or motion is something outside. An asteroid collides with another, a planet pulls a motion towards it using gravity, a golf ball strikes a stationary ball, an email is sent by the human operating the computer. Things that change need something, whether internal or external, to cause them to change. Otherwise, they wouldn't change. So, if every movement requires a mover, then the question is, what is the mover of the celestial objects like the planets and the stars? 
The planets move in this wacky, eternal way. Everything that moves requires a mover or a cause of its movements. Rocks don't move unless someone moves them, and the same goes for everything else. What causes the planets to move then? Here's where the argument starts getting to be a reductio ad absurdum. His next move is going to be to offer a supposition. Wait, what's a supposition? That's a fancy long word. It sounds like supplication, superposition, or supercalifragilistic expialidocious. Supposition is a kind of, well, take it to be the case that such is the case. Right. Supposition comes from the word suppose. So Aristotle here is asking us to suppose, for the sake of argument, that something is true or something is the case, even if we don't necessarily think it's true as a matter of actual fact. That's how a reductio works. Remember, it gives us an assumption and then shows that this assumption has absurd or contradictory consequences. If the consequences of an idea are absurd, then the idea itself is absurd. That's the really rough idea. And he says, suppose that every mover is itself moved. Wait a second, Mr. Fitzpatrick. Wasn't that just the second claim or premise of the argument? Well, not quite. The second claim was essentially that all movement or change requires some explanation, whether it be explained by the changing thing itself, like in puberty, or explained by something else, like when I whack a golf ball and send it flying down the fairway. I guess in my case it would end up in the rough if I'm honest. I get two in my head playing golf and tend to slice way off course. Head down, ball even with forward foot, firm but easy grip, slightly bent knees, bent at the waist, Four. Aristotle's third premise, the supposition or assumption for the sake of the argument, isn't that all change requires an explanation, it's that all change can be explained by something else. All moving things were once moved by something else. So for any particular object that is in a state of movement, it has some other objects as the source of its movement. And this can be either directly or indirectly. So. When I go to push a rock with a stick, the stick is not necessarily the agent of the movement. It's a conduit through which I move the rock. But this still counts as an external mover of the rock. One more general fact to point out. Anything that causes anything else to move must itself be moving. Remember, this is before any talk about gravity and the like, even really before magnetism was discovered in any robust sense. So the idea of moving is fairly mechanical. Moving something requires pushing it, whacking it, pulling it, stretching it, heating it, cooling it, drying it, wetting it, and so on. When I whack a golf ball, I must be moving so that I can transfer movement into the golf club so that the club can strike the ball and transfer movement into the ball. No way to do it without either directly or indirectly moving so as to transfer movement into the ball. Here's where the absurdity enters. If every moving thing is moved by some other thing, and if to move something requires moving oneself, then everything will always need to be moved by something else. Everything. No exceptions. Uh, that means that we have a kind of chain of movers and movement that's going to continue to extend back into infinity. That every time you precede a movement with another mover, that movement is itself going to depend on a prior mover. This is called an infinite regress because the chain of moving things and the movers that move them 
and the movers that move them, and the movers that move them, and the movers that move them, and then the movers that move them, and the movers that move them, and the movers that move them, and then the movers that move them, and the movers that move them, and then the movers that move them, and the movers that came before to move them, and the ones before that move them, and the ones before them that move them, and the ones before them that move them. This chain must extend back into infinity, and there's no first mover that itself doesn't need to be moved. It either doesn't move or it moves itself. Each movement is sort of being deferred or dependent on a thing prior to it, and that thing on a thing prior to it, and that thing on a thing. The infinite regress thing is easy to picture using dominoes. So if you have, say, a particular domino, and you've got a kind of line of dominoes, imagine that you explain the fall of one domino by the fall of the domino that preceded it. Well, what caused that domino to fall? Well, the domino before it, and so on and so on. But if it's all dominoes all the way back into infinity, then you sort of begin to wonder, well, how did this falling of dominoes ever get started? There was no first domino to fall, which would lead to the fall of all the rest of the dominoes. You might think that's fine because lots of things don't need something else to move them. I was just sitting there just now listening to the dulcet sound of Andrew's voice, and then I got up to get a drink of water. I moved myself. No need to posit something that moves me because I move myself. This is a really tempting strategy at this point. Aristotle does, however, have a response. Now, one thing to note in my analogy of the dominoes is that that's not actually quite how Aristotle thinks about the motion of the celestial bodies. The domino analogy is a really good picture of how Aristotle thinks about earthly motion. So Aristotle thinks that my actions as a human being ultimately have their source in the actions of my parents to bring me into this world. And so I don't entirely depend on myself, but I depend on them coming before me. And that, so that's kind of like the dominoes. My parents are the domino that preceded me in part. But in the heavens, we have unchanging and unceasing motion. So we have, for example, planets that orbit in circles forever. They never change their orbit, and they never stop orbiting. You're not self-made. Your existence and nature and movement all still rely on your parents having brought you into this world. That conception got this whole process started and eventually led to the neural impulses in your brain that allowed you to form the intention to move to the sink to get water. So you're not a quote-unquote unmoved mover because you yourself got started in a particular way. Okay, so we're on the precipice of the reductio ad absurdum doing its thing, rejecting the supposition because it has absurd consequences. If there's no starting point, no unmoved mover then there really isn't an explanation for the movement of the dominoes. There's no cause at all. So the basic structure of Aristotle's thinking, and this is a pattern that he uses a lot in his writings, is to prove a conclusion by essentially assuming its opposite and then showing how careful reflection on that opposite assumption leads to a kind of state of affairs that is either impossible or self-contradictory or in some other way unintelligible. And in this particular case, the absurdity is this infinite chain of deferred motion that never gets started. An infinite regress, for Aristotle, is absurd. If I check into a hotel, let's call it Hilbert's Infinite Hotel, 
The attendant says, I'm sorry, but all the rooms are booked. We have an infinite number of guests in our infinite rooms. I ask to speak to the manager, and the manager comes out, looks at the computer, and says, actually, you're in luck. We'll just have everyone move down one room, and we've still got room. The hotel is full, but luckily we can make room. That's a weird scenario, right? Where did the people go? How is it that the hotel that's full suddenly has room for one more? The moral of the story is infinity's kind of weird. Aristotle rightly points out that it's kind of weird. You don't really explain how the dominoes moved if you can't point to an initial cause. A sort of analogy is as follows. Welcome, good to meet you, cheers. How did you decide to come to this job interview today? Well, I was in the waiting room, and then when the person at the front desk called my name, I just sort of got up and came in here. No, no, I mean, what made you come to this interview today? Well, before I was in the waiting room, I was waiting for the elevator to let me off. Once the door opened on your floor, I just sort of felt compelled to get off and walk over here to your front lobby. I guess after that, I checked in with the front desk person, which is how I came to be there in the waiting room when they called my name. All right, this is getting a bit daft. You're joking, right? Why are you here? Oh, okay. Well, before I got in the elevator, I was walking from the metro station. I had uh, looked up ahead of time how to get here from the metro station and... uh... No, no, no. What's your purpose for being here at this interview? What made you decide to apply for the job? Oh, I get it. I, uh, I already had the application filled out. So by the time I applied, it was a it was sort of a no-brainer. I just hit the submit button in, on the online form there, and um, that was the easy part, actually. All right. I doubt very much that you're a good fit for the position, but now you've got me curious. The question I mean to ask is, what is it about this job that interested you enough to apply? Oh, okay. Well, my father was actually reading the classified ads and sent me a picture of your ad on his phone. And? And, um, and what, what are you asking? I'm sorry, I'm really trying here. And what about this job in particular made you want to apply? Oh, I see. The position was the one I had already filled the job application out for. And so again, by the time I was ready to apply, I'd already put all the work in. Didn't I already say that? And before you filled out the application, what made you decide to begin filling out the application? Yes, well, again, my father sent me a picture, and I looked up the position listing online, and then I was on your website, so I just started filling out the application. And what is it that made your father think that you might be a good candidate for this position? My father saw the ad, and then he he sent it to me because he had already gone through all the trouble of taking a picture of the ad with his phone, so he might as well just sent it to me at that point. You're not one for making decisions yourself, then. I'll be honest with you, I am not a self-starter. The annoying applicant never quite grasps the question because they keep just giving the previous step rather than going back to the beginning, where a real explanation can be given. Aristotle is quite taken with his intuition. There's a real explanation for certain changes and movements. It'd be odd to answer the question, why did that golf ball go over there, with, well, the face of my golf club hit it. It's much more natural to say, I hit it over there with my golf club. The explanation stops at a certain point, even though there are thousands of intermediate steps. If we think there are only intermediate steps, then it's almost like we have no explanation at all for what happened. Kind of like our exasperated hiring manager from the story never really gets an answer to their question, do they? 
This is why Aristotle thinks that an infinite regress is absurd. It's just one darn thing after another, but never a real explanation of what happened. So this is why Aristotle's supposition gets rejected as being absurd. Their supposition, remember, was suppose that every mover is itself moved. Suppose that every change in a being can be explained by appeal to something else causing that change. That's been shown to lead to this kind of absurd infinite chain or infinite regress of movers. And so we reject that. That means if the supposition is false, that there must be at least some movers that are not themselves moved. And so that's what leads to Aristotle's conclusion that somewhere in the universe, there must be unmoved movers that are the source of the rest of the movement. And the unmoved mover that has sort of the responsibility for all the movement is going to be the prime mover or the first mover. We can't just trace dominoes back into infinity. We have to find a first domino that just happened to fall over. Or maybe there's this super intelligent being that decides for itself to start this chain reaction, like a uh, five-year-old kid. Of course, dominoes aren't really the best analogy here. So when he's talking about the need for an unmoved mover, he's not really talking about the beginning of motion in the domino sense that I was mentioning earlier. He's really thinking of it as you have this perpetual motion machine, these celestial bodies, and they've, they've always been in motion and they always will be in motion. But that motion itself has to have uh, a source. In other words, even though it's always been there, there's still a question of what what keeps it always going? Why doesn't the perpetual motion machine stop? And the thing that keeps it always going, that's the unmoved mover. It's the source of the perpetual motion of the celestial bodies. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what we end up knowing about this prime mover or unmoved mover. Please do subscribe to the podcast using a podcast app or iTunes. My personal favorite is an app called Pocket Casts. If you're aching for a show that incorporates philosophical ideas that's just as, if not more, engaging and fun as Reductio, I've included a link to the homepage of a fantastic show called Hi-Fi Nation. That's phi or P-H-I as in the Greek letter at the beginning of the Greek word philosophy. So Hi-Fi Nation. Some amazingly good episodes there. I recommend as gateway episodes, The Wishes of the Dead and Cover Me Softly. Just fantastic stuff. Welcome back. So I asked Michael Fitzpatrick of Stanford University a few further questions about Aristotle's unmoved movers. First, what sort of thing is this prime mover, or are these unmoved movers? So the unmoved movers, and the prime mover especially, is going to have five properties. The prime mover is eternal. This is necessary because if the prime mover ever stopped existing, then the celestial bodies would stop moving, so it can't ever stop existing. Got it. Aristotle needs them to be eternal to explain how the universe is apparently put together. So they're eternally existent beings. Side note, Aristotle actually thinks that the whole universe is eternal and that time is eternal. So being eternal is special, but not really that special for Aristotle. 
The second property is that the prime mover is unmoved. That's just proven by the argument itself. It's got to be the kind of thing that can initiate a pattern of movement and doesn't require a dependency on another mover. This is pretty self-explanatory, but basically the proof we've just gone through shows nothing if not that these unmoved movers or the single unmoved mover must not themselves be subject to changes from the outside forces or movers. The third property is that it's immaterial, or as Aristotle would put it, it's with, without magnitude. The unmoved movers must also be immaterial for some reasons inherent in how Aristotle thinks about material being and objects of thought or desire. We won't get into that. The fourth property of the prime mover is that it's a substance. In fact, it's the substance. The prime mover is, and the other unmoved movers, are the only thing in existence that are pure actuality. They have no potentiality in them whatsoever, because if they had potentiality, then there would be room for contingency. The unmoved movers must also be substances or basic sorts of beings. Again, this is a rabbit hole we best not tread down here. Finally, the prime mover is... A kind of mind, if you will. This also has a justification that would take us too far afield, but it suffices to say that the prime mover, the supreme unmoved mover, must be a totally self-sufficient and perfect object of desire. So to fit the bill, it'll need to be a mind that contemplates itself and only itself. I know, it's complicated and maybe weird. I, I could do it better justice, but it'd take us way off course, so I, uh, so I won't. There we have it. Aristotle's proof of the existence of a series of unmoved movers, or perhaps one prime mover. What do you think? Are you convinced that there must indeed be an unmoved mover? Something that explains why other things move and change while itself not moving or changing? Perhaps not. This argument probably doesn't hold as much water as it did back in the day because our cosmology, our understanding of the structure and nature of the cosmos, has changed so dramatically that many of Aristotle's premises don't seem to be true to a modern listener. What if there was a different argument along similar lines, though, that at least isn't obviously guilty of making the same scientific blunders? Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period perhaps put forth one such argument. It's a reformulation of what Aristotle says, and it draws inspiration from Arabic philosophers like Ibn Sina, whom we discussed in a short episode or a monad, Ibn Rushd, and others from the greater tradition that follows Aristotle. Aristotle is a Greek polytheist around 300 BCE. Aquinas is a Christian monotheist around 1200 CE. But Aquinas builds on this long tradition that starts with Aristotle, and in doing so puts forth his own proof for the existence of the Christian God. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of interesting comparisons between Aristotle and Aquinas, and they're interesting because Aquinas was an Aristotelian, meaning he developed his Christian philosophy through the tools and principles of Aristotle. And that's interesting because Aquinas was a monotheist and Aristotle was a polytheist. And it's also interesting because Aristotle thought the world was eternal, whereas Aquinas thought the world is created. So for Aristotle, no creation. The world just exists eternally. For Aquinas, the world must have started existing because Aquinas has the Jewish Torah, particularly the creation myth in the book of Genesis, to contend with. God must have created the universe at some point. 
they end up, therefore, with quite different conceptions of God. For Aristotle, the, the prime mover is as much a part of the natural world as anything else. In a way, Aristotle is a naturalist in that he doesn't think there's some kind of like supernatural forces beyond the forces that all have a kind of regular principled structure in the natural world. The prime mover and any other unmoved movers are postulated as a kind of natural and eternal substance that guarantees the eternal motion of the heavens. But Aquinas sees things differently. God is this transcendent supernatural entity. God's relationship to nature for Aquinas is more like J.K. Rowling's relationship to the wizarding world. Something happening in the wizarding world is J.K. Rowling allowing it to happen in a certain way. And without J.K. Rowling, there's no more wizarding world. The Harry Potter books are a record of what has happened in the past, but without an author, nothing further can happen in the world. And so, in a sense, there simply is no more world. The Harry Potter series are just a bunch of history books about a world that no longer exists. That is, if J.K. Rowling stops writing. In other words, without Aristotle's prime mover, there wouldn't be any motion. Without Aquinas' God, though, there wouldn't be any universe at all. Let's take a quick break and then close by discussing the general importance of Aristotle's reductio proof for the existence of a prime mover. Okay, so there are some obvious problems with Aristotle's argument. For one, he takes as a central premise that the circular motion of the heavens is in fact eternal. No beginning, no end, no slow wind-down to the heat-death of the universe, just perfect circumnavigation. But we don't believe this anymore. We are now convinced that not only is the motion not eternal, but neither is it perfect or circular or at a constant speed. It's constantly evolving, just at a speed that's imperceptibly slow. One way of describing this problem for Aristotle's argument is that it relies on a false empirical premise. An empirical premise is a claim about the world that you can test through the methods of the natural sciences. If a physicist, for example, can run an experiment that tells me whether my claim is right or wrong, then my claim is an empirical one. Aristotle made a claim about the stars that turned out not to be true. Empirical science told us it wasn't true. Now, to be sure, there are interpretations of Aristotle's argument, other ways of reconstructing the argument, that don't rely so heavily on this false empirical premise. Either way, though, it seems like Aristotle will have a problem to some degree. But is his argument garbage? Well, it's a funny question. In a sense, yes, his argument is just a bad argument because it has a false premise. But that's not too interesting, because there are always lots of little tweaks one can make to improve an argument. So can we do that to Aristotle's proof? Well, yeah, Thomas Aquinas, that guy we mentioned earlier, changes the proof while keeping some of the same basic elements in place. His argument, though, need not rely on a false empirical claim like Aristotle's does. 
Aquinas' proof works slightly differently, but arrives at essentially the same conclusion. He starts by observing that things are moving and then working through general claims about how every moving thing needed to be moved by something. Supposing that everything that moves other things must have first itself been moved by something else, generating the infinite regress and then denying that everything is dependent on other things in this way. There must be at least one thing that isn't dependent in the same way, and that thing is God. We need only focus on one detail of the proof. Aquinas didn't so much think that the special kind of motion in the heavens needs a special kind of cause. Instead, he thought all motion needs an origin, and he posited God as just such an origin. All motion, not just the eternal motion of the stars, needs a cause. So, no false empirical premise here. All motion needs an explanation, and it can't be just moved movers into the past and to infinity. So there must be a prime mover that stops the infinite regress. There must be an unmoved mover that got the whole domino chain moving. So you'll have to decide for yourself, does all motion need an explanation? In our current physical cosmology, there is supposed to be a singularity where all physical concepts break down. No space, really. No time. No before or after or what have you. Then at some point, that singularity burst forth into this in inflationary explosion, creating all of the matter and antimatter that makes up the universe around us and that we ourselves are made of. Do we need to explain that Big Bang? Does it cry out for an explanation? Does it make you want to ask why? If yes, then either you posit another moved mover that caused the Big Bang, and that would itself require an explanation, it seems, or you posit an unmoved mover, a prime mover. This is an entity that can explain other motions without itself needing to be explained. A different way of putting a very similar idea comes from Kalam, or rational theology in the classical Muslim world, roughly around 800 in the Common Era. Here's the thought. Contingent events are events that could have gone another way. They could have turned out differently. So to make it more concrete, if I'm wondering why the tables at the wedding reception are round rather than square, someone might respond with, because that's what the bride and groom wanted. But brides and grooms are fickle things, they are. They could have just as easily chosen round tables which is the right choice, by the way. So, so I haven't really explained why they have square tables by pointing to the radically contingent and fickle desires of the newlyweds. It feels like, at least if I get into a certain headspace, it feels like I need an explanation of why it had to be that square table instead of round. If it turned out that the local rental store only had square tables, then it would explain things in a really satisfying way. It would show me that there really wasn't any contingency or chance there at all. They had to choose square tables. But of course it's contingent and arbitrary that the local rental place should only have square tables, and so on and so on. At the end of the day, the point here is supposed to be that the contingent events need explanations. They call out, explain me, why did I happen? Necessary events don't, though. Why is 4 the square of 2? In other words, why is 2 squared equal to 4? Nothing contingent or arbitrary about it. The relationship between the numbers are necessary 
and so they don't really need to be explained in the same way. Kalam theologians thought that since everything that happens in the world is contingent, and indeed the existence of the natural world itself is contingent, it could have just as easily not existed. And indeed, the existence of the natural world is itself contingent. It could have just as easily not existed. Since all these things are contingent, we need a non-contingent or necessary cause that we can point to in order to explain these contingencies. We can't just keep positing more contingent events. We need to know why it happened the way it did, and pointing to something else, that again, we don't know why it happened the way it did, won't explain it, at least not fully satisfactorily. Guess who the Kalam theologians pointed to? Allah, the benevolent and merciful, the God of the Abrahamic religions. God's existence is necessary so we can appeal to God to explain the contingent events without having to explain the existence of God. Again, you'll have to decide for yourself whether these arguments are convincing. They all, in some sense, though, have the form of a reductio. An infinite regress is absurd, so any set of assumptions that imply an infinite regress must be false. Thank you once again for joining us here on Reductio. Thank you so much to my good friend Michael Fitzpatrick for taking the time and energy to educate us on Aristotle's prime mover. All aboard, next stop will be the promised full episode involving the trolley problem. What is it, and how might we get ourselves out of it? Now that you've heard a little bit about famous philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, you might be surprised to learn that he wrote some plays, and they're uh, not very well known, but... One of the interesting things about his plays is that he didn't want humans to play the roles at all. In fact, at one point at the beginning of one of his scripts, he said something peculiar. He said, casting human actors is unnecessary. Actually, God can do all of those roles. If you want to support us, you can uh, leave a review on iTunes and Google Play. That would be very, very helpful. There's a link in the show notes. You can also support us at patreon.com slash reductio. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all of our current Patreon supporters. Your support means so much to us. This has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin.